it's good to see all of you this morning. You could be turning to the Gospel of John, chapter 18. The, the hour has come. Started seeing this last week. And as we start this morning, Jesus is now under arrest. I mean, things have changed so quickly. He's under arrest. He's bound. It's the middle of the night. And by early morning, the Jews will be settled with their proceedings. They'll be finished, and by the morning light, they will bring our Lord to Pilate. And chapter 18 of John is taken up with that whole series of events. But it really is masterful, the way that John leads us through this portion of the gospel story. What he does for us is he interweaves two storylines together in the telling of this. Uh, there are storylines that are unfolding at the same time. Uh, in just a moment, we'll read verses 12 to 27, and as we do that, you'll hear this. You'll hear the back and forth shift between what's happening with Jesus and what's happening with Peter. Uh, one thing that we'll see this morning is that John shows more interest than the other gospel writers to hold out for us the example of Peter's life. And when, when you look at that example, it's quite a thing to see, uh, in particular in the way that John gives it to us. Uh, and in fact, for that reason, this morning, what we'll do with our time is we will think exclusively together about what happens with Peter. Next week, we'll be in the same text, and we'll look at the interrogations of Annas and Pilate. Uh, but this morning, we focus our attention on these events that were told about with Peter. So bear that in mind as we read then. I'll be reading John 18 verses 12 to 27. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. John 18, beginning at verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have, heard, who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. 
When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Isn't it a strange feeling to know that we're sitting here watching a man on the worst day of his life? It's almost awkward to to sit and observe as this transpires. There's no doubt that he would consider it that. The single worst series of moments in his entire life. And yet it's necessary that we do what we do. It's good that we've been given this account in God's word. And I think it's safe to say Peter would thoroughly want us to do what we're doing here, to look carefully at him on this, the worst day of his life. Because it's a day or a night, this is a picture that is so important for us that it's one of the few events that is retold in all four gospel accounts. There's actually not that many of those that find their way into all four of the Gospels, and this is one of them. And it, it, it's really not our point this morning, but as we begin, I think it is worth calling attention to just what we're seeing uh, in Peter on this night in the hands of God, because what we're finding is that very often in the Lord's hands, our darkest hour can wind up later being some of the most substantial moments in all of our lives. This is the God that we serve. He can so work that those days actually become the stuff of the most influential or impactful stories that will be told about us. That's a truth that is just good for us to understand in our minds on this side of those moments as they come. To understand that they are not going to last forever and that we have good reason to take care with how we walk through those dark nights because they can become, in the hands of God, keystones in the way that he uses us in the lives of future generations. That's certainly something that we see on display as we behold Peter on this, the worst day of his life. And we reflect upon God's use of him in this time. And so this morning, we're really just simply going to walk with him uh, through the events of this night. But we're not going to do it in a way that only looks at this night for Peter. Because what John has done, the beauty of what he's given us in the story of Peter, is not just found in the events of this evening. It's the way that John tells us Peter's story throughout his gospel. It's masterful. And so I want us to see together the whole picture of Peter that John gives us. 
And that's what we're going to do. It can be a bit surprising to realize that Peter only actually appears by name individually a handful of times in this entire gospel account. And yet the places that we're given are unique and paint an incredible picture. So what we'll do this morning is essentially walk Peter's path in John's gospel. This is what we're going to do. That path begins at chapter 1. We'll really just brush over the first couple of scenarios because his story in John's gospel starts very well. Uh, and it's positive and uh, he's introduced to Jesus in chapter 1. You see it there. Uh, Jesus gives him the name of Peter. The next scenario that he arises in is in chapter 6. Look at chapter 6, John 6, 68. Just remember the declaration that Peter made in that chapter, the famous declaration. Jesus has just had hosts of crowds walk away from him. We'll start at verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So there's this famous declaration uh, representing the disciples, the whole of them, but coming, as it so often did, from the mouth of Peter. That's chapter 6. He doesn't come back up again until chapter 13, individually. Chapter 13 is where we saw Peter question Jesus. You remember that night. This is the foot washing event. Jesus is playing out the role in front of them of a servant. He's dressed in servant's clothing, uh, which is a dishonor to one in his, at his place. He's even dishonored himself by kneeling and washing their feet. You remember this scene. And he's going down the row of them, washing their feet. Maybe you remember the exchange there when he got to Peter. Peter objects to what he's doing. And Jesus, Jesus told him there in verse 7, What I am doing you do not understand now, but, uh, but afterward you will understand. And even then Peter's reply is what? You shall never wash my feet. Now, it's true that Jesus rebukes him then, and Peter does not double down. Peter is soft at this rebuke. He responds to the rebuke. Um, he certainly displays a very deep love for Christ in that moment and a genuine desire to be identified with him. Remember what, what the Lord said to him in his response, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. And at that prospect, he said, well, then wash every." Part of me. I want to be with you. That's very plain. The genuineness in Peter of a desire to be near his Lord. But John recounts this event in Peter's life for us. None of the other gospel writers include it. And in doing that, in giving us this picture and then moving on with the story, we are let in on a struggle inside of Peter. Already there we can tell. Peter is not comfortable with the notion that Christ would be associated with humiliation or with dishonor. He, he is Peter the rock. He has seen Jesus walk on water at this point. 
He has seen him heal countless people. He has seen him bring food into existence with the fish and the loaves. Peter is not uncomfortable with opposition. He is bold. He is not uncomfortable with confrontation. But he is uncomfortable with his unity with Jesus being a thing that would put weakness on display. Humiliation, lowness. This is something he is not accustomed to associating with his Lord in any way, and he finds the notion abhorrent. And incidentally, it's this chapter, isn't it? At the end of chapter 13, that ends with Peter's confident assertions about himself that give rise to the predictions by our Lord about these very denials that are in our text that we'll see this morning. And you remember that it leaves Peter speechless then for the next four chapters of John. You cannot imagine a scenario where he would do such a thing as deny his Lord. So that's chapter 13. The next time that his name is even mentioned, we're in chapter 18. And we're in last week's passage. They've just come to arrest Jesus. We saw this last week, didn't we? Peter is ready to go. He is ready to rock. He's ready for lightning bolts. He wants in on it too. And he takes out his sword and he lops off the ear of a man named Malchus. He is not afraid of confrontation. But then what happens? Have you thought of the confusion on Peter's part? He who was so convinced at what this moment was supposed to be that he felt free to remove his sword and go on the attack, unbidden by the Lord. He was so convinced of what this moment was. And suddenly he finds himself being rebuked. And in fact, being rebuked by the one that he thought he was joining in a response to this challenge. The rebuke involved a question. Jesus asked him, Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? What he's just heard from his Lord is, This is the path I've been intended to walk. It's the path I've been walking toward. And we can tell that he's being hit here in a place, that Peter is being hit in a place that he is particularly weak in. He's particularly sensitive to. Because we know from Matthew and Mark that not only is this not the first time that Peter has been rebuked by Jesus, but the other time he was rebuked by Jesus, it was because of the exact same struggle. When was it that Jesus said to Peter in those Gospels, Get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. When was it that that happened in Peter's life? It was when Jesus was telling them about suffering and dying. And Peter rebuked Jesus for talking like that. Do you notice the particular weakness that we're seeing on display in this man? And again, it is important that we recognize that it's a particular weakness. It's not a broad, expansive weakness. It's not a weakness on every front. It's a particular weakness that he is prone to. It's not his allegiance to Christ per se. It's not boldness. It's not love of Christ. It's the experience or perception of weakness and humility. There is a pride at work in Peter's conception of what it means to belong to Christ, what it means to follow the path that Christ would would lead. 
This is what he cannot reconcile with being joined to Christ. Notions of weakness and humility. As a disciple, Peter has witnessed plenty of opposition throughout Jesus' ministry. But think about what what else has been the steady for him in his experience with Christ. Just as much as he's experienced opposition, maybe even more so. And in the midst of that opposition, he has lived for three years with a steady dose of people marveling. You know how many times the word marveled appears in the gospel accounts? People being amazed everywhere they went. People thanking them. Opponents standing up and being put to shame. Being confounded by Jesus' arguments. Being silenced by miracles. This has been the status quo for three years. And now where is Peter in chapter 18? His Lord has just rebuked him for wrong expectations, and he has watched Jesus be led off bound. He himself has fled, but only a a short distance so that he might continue to follow. And now, this morning, Peter comes into the courtyard of the high priest in order to be near and to see what's happening. And in verse 17, a servant girl says to him as he enters, Surely you're not one of that man's disciples. Are you? It's a question that is phrased in the original language exactly in the way that it is translated in English, in what I just read in the ESV. It's well translated. There are ways to ask a question that either expect a positive or a negative answer, right? We do that all the time. Uh, You're not one of his disciples, right? Expects a yes answer. Yeah, I'm not one of his disciples. Uh, Oh, excuse me. Let let me rephrase that. I mixed the two up. Let's try that again. Um, What are you expecting if someone asks you this? You're one of his disciples, right? There's a yes answer. Yes, I'm one of his disciples. How about this one? You're not one of his disciples, are you? There's a negative answer. By the way you phrase the question, you can be leading toward a positive or a negative. That's just how it works. That's not a unique thing to English. That's, you do that in languages. It's the same way in Greek. And her question is phrased in expectation of a negative answer. She's not expecting him to be one of Jesus' disciples. This is a ridiculous notion to her. So that Peter is suddenly in a situation in which being a disciple of Jesus is something that is met with an incredulous response. Even the servant girl watching the door here knows that it would be ridiculous to be a disciple of this man. Now add to that that Peter is cold and anxious and just wants to get inside. There's this young girl. It's not clear how young she is, but it does seem that she's young. He just wants to get inside and see what's happening with Jesus. And the only thing threatening to delay that is the potential that this servant girl is mouthy. So why not just give her what she wants so she'll leave him alone? He's just trying to get through the doorway. Leon Morris points something out here that I find very helpful in general. It's it's useful in understanding this situation. But it's also helpful in our thinking about the deceitfulness of sin. Listen to what he wrote. He said, the question, in other words, the way that the question was phrased, expecting a negative answer. The question suggested a line of escape. And Peter gratefully took it up. 
Almost certainly, he did not reflect on where it would lead him. And once committed, he must have found it hard to go back on his denial. Another man named William Temple who said something similar. See if you can hear in what he says here an experience that you and I have found to be true regarding sin's deceitful ways in our lives. He wrote this, to accept the suggestion of this first question, the suggestion that the answer is probably no, I'm not a disciple. To accept the suggestion of this first question is scarcely more than a refusal to look for trouble. The suggestion is that he is not likely to be a disciple, and no one will suppose he is unless he says so. He had little more to do than to let well enough alone. But that little more is fatal. And so it is enough to lead Peter to do the small thing here, to deny Jesus in a way that is so seemingly insignificant. It accomplishes a purpose here, it's just a little girl. It's not a meaningful question of just trying to get past. It's so seemingly insignificant, but it is the beginning of its own path. And certainly this shows us something that we have all experienced ourselves. Regarding the lies that we tell. How many times have we learned how slippery the path is that leads away from simple obedience to Christ? And this is the experience here of the mighty apostle Peter. He's made it into the courtyard with this little insignificant step. But he's also now broken the seal on his firm commitment never to forsake his Lord. The second and third denials come to us in short order. Look at verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. Their question is worded in exactly the same way that the servant girl's question was worded, expecting a negative answer. But we know from the other accounts as well that at this point some suspicion is starting to arise. He's gaining some attention because there are some, there's some degree of conversations happening around these fires. And Peter's increasingly recognized, the other Gospels tell us this, to be from the region of Galilee because of his accent. They had a strong accent. And it's generally known that Jesus' disciples are Galilean. Uh, this is not Galilee. So it's bringing unwanted attention upon Peter. And as the glow of the coals give the little light that they would give, enough to kind of see but not see well, there's a man standing there with them who had been there in the garden earlier that evening. And in fact, he's a relative of the man that Peter had injured. And he asks him another question. Then in verse 26, did I not see you in the garden with him? Now that's that other kind of question at this point. That's not a, you're not him, are you, question. That's a, you're him, aren't you, question. This is a yes expectation. Things are ratcheting up all the way through this account for him. 
The, the thing to notice with both of those last two denials is that they are not exactly like the first one in the sense that they don't serve an immediate pragmatic uh, purpose for him in getting closer to Jesus, do they? They don't gain him something like the first one did. They can't be explained by that. What is Peter doing with these denials? What's driving them? Why is he, why is he responding like this? He has been so bold. He's a bold individual. Why is he responding like this? Is it physical danger that he's afraid of? It may, I'm sure that there are mixed motivations. It, it may be to a degree tensions are surely up that night. This is obviously a group he's with who are passionate about the controversy surrounding Jesus. They've talked about it enough. They've spoken negatively about Jesus enough that even the servant girl has a bad taste in her mouth when she says the name. This is, this is a group with some, with some tension and some passion. But I would suggest something to you. That, that servant girl said something very particular in verse 17 that I think gives us some clarification as to what is driving Peter here. Look back, starting at verse 15. Uh, and in fact, I'm going to hit a little bit of a pause button here. Let's chase a rabbit for just a minute, okay? It will be useful to us here. Um, it says there that another one of the disciples went there with Peter. Do you see that? Only John tells us that. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Who, who's this? And John leaves us plenty of clues that he's talking about himself when he says this. These are events he knows about personally because he was there. John is well known to uh, keep his own role in this story anonymous all the way through the book of John until the very end. In fact, he never directly refers to himself by name. He refers to himself in roundabout ways. He calls himself the other disciple two times. This is one of those. Another disciple or the other disciple. And he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved four times. But notice something with me as we're talking about this. Turn ahead for just a moment to chapter 20. Verse 2 in John 20 is the second place where we find this same designation, uh, not, using, not naming this person, but just calling him the other disciple. Chapter 20, starting at verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We can stop there. Who is this other disciple that yet again is with Peter? You named Peter. Why didn't you just name the other one too? That would be simpler. John is deliberately leaving himself out of the book. He never names himself in the gospel. But what he tells us there is that this other disciple is the one whom Jesus loved. Whoever he's referring to here, they're the same guy. It's not two anonymous people, it's one. And that uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved is the other mysterious designation that he uses four times, as we said. Now look down a little further. Look at chapter 21, verse 20. 
Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. There's this guy and Peter again together. The one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Peter said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is such a fascinating clarification that John is giving us here. Verse 24, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. So he's given us what we need here without mentioning himself by name. These two designations both point to the same person and they point to the author of this book, which is the Apostle John. Okay, so there's the rabbit hole. We can come back to chapter 18 uh, and find verse 15. So let's finish making the point that we're on here. Peter and John follow Jesus together. Okay? Let's keep reading at verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple or the other disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. So just notice, John had some degree of familiarity with the high priest, such that he was able to enter the courtroom, where most were not, were not allowed to. Verse 16, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl, who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Now here's the important part, verse 17. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Do you hear the little word there in her question? You also are not one of his disciples, are you? The obvious implication of her question is that John isn't just known in general here. He's known as Jesus' disciple, as a disciple of Jesus. Even the young girl at the door knows this. Now, here's what that means. It means that being known to be his disciple on that evening is not predominantly creating a situation of imminent physical danger. They all know John to be a disciple of Jesus, and here he is going in and out. So we ask again, what is it that's driving Peter in his denials? The answer matches what we have seen John reveal to us in the heart of Peter. What's driving Peter is shame. Being a disciple is suddenly not a thing associated with power and boldness and glory and the appearance of victory. Suddenly it's a thing associated with humiliation. So much so that even the servant girl talks about it with a look on her face. Peter has not encountered this before. And he's not prepared for it. This may be, this may be a good thing, excuse me, for us to just bear in mind that this is what it looks like in someone like Peter to come into a time where association with Jesus 
is a thing of shame. This is what it looks like for someone like Peter to move into that time unprepared for it. How are we going to look coming into those times if we are unprepared? He's not prepared. This is a profound thing for us to see how the events of this evening bring to a head exactly the things that Jesus has been telling Peter all along. It can very well be summed up, I think, in two parts. Remember these things that Jesus has spoken about. One is the path that needed to be walked, that it would be a path of utter loneliness for Jesus. He has to walk this path alone. John 13, 36, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter kept insisting, no, no, I will go with you. And now Peter tries to follow him, and he fails completely. And even in the way that John describes this to us, emphasizes the uniqueness of Jesus in the path that must be walked. He tells us about Peter's denials, for example, in a way very different than the other three gospel writers do. In this book, where he repeatedly shares with us Jesus' two-word declaration, I am, ego me, I am. He just said it last week, didn't he? When John describes Peter's denials, he leaves out all of the emotion that the other three gospel writers tell us. He leaves out about the, him cursing, and yelling, he leaves all of it out. And instead, the only two words he ascribes to Peter are the opposite of ego eimi, I am. The only things that he says is uk eimi, I am not, I am not. Verse 17, I am not. Verse 25, I am not. If there is any path to rescue and victory, Jesus is the only one who's... <coughs> Who's going to walk it? And he will walk it alone. And Peter is brought nearly to despair. When Jesus turns and looks at him. We don't hear about it here, do we? But probably Jesus is being transferred from Annas to Caiaphas when this third denial is made. And Jesus turns and locks eyes on Peter, and he realizes, yes, indeed, his Lord has been left all alone by his disciples to walk. Peter thought he'd be there. His Lord is alone, and he has said that he must be alone as he marches forward. So one peak being reached here has to do with Peter's final realization of his inability to walk this path to victory that his Lord is walking. But the other peak, and maybe the central one in what we're seeing this morning, more has to do with the nature of that path itself. Jesus had said, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later. And what Peter is discovering about the path on that night is not what he thought it would be. Peter, the path that you follow when you follow me is a humble one. It's a path of self-denial and humility. It's a path of utter willingness. Remember how Jesus has said, I came only to do my Father's will. Everything he speaks to me, this I do and this I teach. 
The path he's come to walk is a path of willingness to be put at the Father's disposal and to be used up for his glory and not for our own. This is what Jesus has been telling Peter the entire time. And he has not understood the nature of this path that lay before his Lord. Peter was more than ready to suffer gloriously for Jesus. He was not ready to suffer shame and mockery. Because all of his thoughts and expectations had followed a line that a long time after these events, Martin Luther wrote about and called a theology of glory. The expectation and pursuit of glory in obedience to the Lord in this life. A victory according to the way that man thinks of victory. What Peter had failed to grab hold of was the opposite of that. Not a theology of glory, but a theology of the cross. Because Jesus' glory, the glory that he was pursuing, to which he marched, is a glory that would be found in the shame and suffering and self-denial of the cross. Complete self-denial. The glory of putting oneself at the disposal of the Father for his glory. Just think of the things that our Lord has said. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? For this purpose I have come to this hour. This morning we're seeing a picture. We're seeing the story of Peter, and there is nobody in a better position to tell us that story than the Apostle John. You've seen in just some of the places we've referenced that these two guys just keep winding up together. They obviously had a special relationship. Chapter 13, verse 22. I'll just remind you of some of these connection points. Peter wants to know who Jesus is talking about when he's referencing Judas, and he motions to John to ask him that. Here this morning, 1815, it's the two of them who are traveling together after the arrest. Early verses of chapter 20, when Mary runs to tell the disciples, he, she encounters Peter and John together, who together run to the tomb. Chapter 21, 7, when John recognizes that it's Jesus talking to them from the shore, who does he turn and tell it to? He turns to Peter right there and tells him. John 21, verses 20 and 21, John is following Peter and Jesus as they talk, and Peter goes out of his way to show concern and interest in what's going to come in the life of John in particular. These two men have a very special relationship. But by the time John is writing this account, Peter is dead. Which I assume also means that he's finished writing all of the things that he wrote as the Spirit used him to write Holy Scripture. I think it's a fair assumption to make. Uh, and John had seen Peter become a man who encouraged the church to reach out to the lost world, 1 Peter 3.15, with gentleness and reverence. He'd seen him become the man who urged God's people to humble themselves under the mighty hand of God to wait for him to exalt you, 1 Peter 5.6. John had seen Peter come to lead the other disciples as they rejoiced in Acts chapter 5. 
You remember what they rejoiced at there? Explicitly stated, they went away rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Peter is leading them in rejoicing at the opportunity to suffer shame. John has seen his friend come out the other side of all of this, a completely transformed man. And so just as carefully as John shows us Peter certainly to warn us, there's some real warning in this text coming from Peter's life, isn't there? The kind of warning that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. That kind of warning is significant, and Peter is a walking embodiment of it on this night. But as much as we see that in John's account of Peter, we're also shown the way that Jesus actually shepherds us to that place. And we see it with John's two charcoal fires. He's the only one in all of Scripture to use this word in verse 18 that means a charcoal fire. It's very specific. It only shows up twice in the Bible both from John's pen, both in this letter. There's this charcoal fire around which Peter makes these denials of his Lord and runs off weeping in shame. And at the very end of this book, in chapter 21, we're told about another charcoal fire. The disciples by that point have gone back to fishing. Uh, but they encounter Jesus standing on the shore. And when Peter realizes who it is, he throws himself into the sea in order to get to him faster. And by the time the others finally catch up, what do they find there on the shore? They find Jesus and they find Peter sitting at a charcoal fire. And that's the setting where Jesus asks Peter three times, Excuse me, where Peter is asked three times if he loves Jesus. And so Peter gets the chance to replace those three denials at a charcoal fire with three affirmations of his love for his Lord. And he lives out his days then, following after this one. He doesn't follow him perfectly after that, does he? He is still Peter. And so he still stumbles in many ways like the rest of us do. He's not even finished being publicly rebuked and having that rebuke recorded in the text of Scripture for all of the church to see forever. Uh, Paul will have to do that to him a few years later. But this Peter becomes one of the pillars of the people of God. Do you see the extent to which Christ ordained the darkest night of Peter's life to be a life-changing instrument in his hands. Certainly life-changing for Peter himself. He finally came to know the truth that our hope is never in a path of glory for ourselves. It is always a path of glory for him. And that his path of glory was a path that led to the cross. It's that path that he calls us to follow him on. And we only follow him down that path after he has forged it himself and by himself. 
Peter came to understand those things by experience. It was the darkest night of his life, but what would he say now except, oh, it was worth it. It was worth it. How much do we see about the heart of our Lord, about the good purposes and plans of our sovereign God and what we're seeing in this man's life? What do we see if not? Two things in particular. One, that God does not waste our suffering, nor does he dole it out casually. He reveals much to us through it. That's one thing we see very evidently in what's happening here with Peter. Another thing that we see is the gentleness of our Lord. Our Lord is full of mercy and forgiveness. We see that he will redeem us from our darkest days. He will restore us in love. Peter is given to us as an example of all of us. An example to be remembered. When Jesus told him in Luke 22, Satan demanded to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned, strengthen your brothers. He does allow us to stumble. But he will also cause us to stand in the end. Because he himself is our peace. He is our strength. And so ours is rightly then, if that's all true, ours is rightly a humble life of faith and dependency. This is what he calls us to as we follow after him. The call that Peter's life gives to us is the call to embrace a life of self-forgetfulness. What are we to do now that the Lord has brought us to himself, given us eyes to see our moral bankruptcy, our hopelessness in and of ourselves, our need for for a substitute in our place, our need for forgiveness, Christ's willingness, and in fact, his effectiveness at the cross of accomplishing just that for all of those whose faith is in him. He has shown us these things. What are we called to do now as we walk forward? We fix our hope on Christ, and we make it our ambition not to seek our own glory, but to be used, poured out, on the altar of our sacrifice and service to God, to make it our ambition to be at His disposal and to be exalted only if and when He chooses to exalt us. Think of how much we have been shown because of what John got to see in Peter's life. It's well said by our Lord, He who has been forgiven much loves much. What do our dark nights reveal to us? They reveal our frailty. They reveal our, the fact that we are not dependable. They prove to us that we were never as strong as we thought we were. That we are not sufficient. Those nights force us to know that those things are true about us. And as we come out of them, even having failed in the midst of them, and we find in the face of Jesus Christ... Not anger, but mercy. Willingness to forgive and to restore. They make all the more apparent to us that our king is committed to lifting up the lowly and the brokenhearted. He has come to us in the flesh in fulfillment of the picture 
of Psalm 145, which says this beginning in verse 14. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but the wicked he will destroy. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we bow our heads before you as your people. We, we see our shortcomings. We see our sinfulness and our frailty in the example of Peter on this night. Lord, thank you for what we see in the whole of your, of your scripture. Thank you for what we see in Peter's life, that you are one who regards the lowly. You are one who who knows the frame of your people, that if we are trusting in your son, though we stumble and fall, you will always be there to restore and to transform. God, thank you for the ways that your mercy becomes some of the most powerful displays of your might in our lives and leads us to want to live no longer for ourselves, but for our Lord who loved us and gave himself for us. God, we pray that you would use your word in our lives in just those ways, that you would soften us, that you would give us patience, that you would give us resolve not to live for our own self-exaltation, but to count it the highest glory, simply to be used in your hands in whatever way you would choose. We thank you for these things that you give us, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.